Good morning. And a couple announcements before we get started this morning. Yesterday, my Aunt Sandy passed away unexpectedly yesterday morning. And if you would remember my mom, I sent out an email to the class for those of you who are on our email list with some contact information for my mother. And as you know, she was here last week visiting. Uh, Sandy was here. And Sandy, as you know, was mentally handicapped and lived with my mother. So it was unexpected. So if you remember, remember the family. Thank you. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. I pray that you will uh, be with my mom this week and really bring some comfort to her. As we uh, face uh, the realities of this world of sin, it really reminds us how, how much nature has just been corrupted and, and how much uh, things have deviated from your design. We understand that death is an intruder. It was never part of your plan or system. And we long for the, for the new heaven and the earth that you will come soon and and to that end, this class and this ministry stands to try to promote a message that will lighten the world, to turn the world back to your design. And we pray you'll bless us and help this message reach, reach those who are open to it. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We're doing lesson number eight in our quarterly, uh, The Teachings of Jesus. And the title this week is The Church. And as you think about the title, The Church, what is the church? Or maybe I should ask, who makes up the church? Those who believe. I, uh, as I was looking at the lesson title and preparing for this week, First uh, Corinthians 1, 12 and 13 came to mind. This is what it says in First Corinthians 1, 12 to 13. This is out of the NIV. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? What is Paul saying here? If he was speaking today, might Paul say to us, one of you say, I follow Calvin, another I follow Wesley, another I follow Ellen White, still another says, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Might Paul say that today? Hmm. So as you think of the church, is it a denomination? Is the church a denomination? Do we show we're growing up into maturity if we uh, divide into den- denominations, this is out of First uh, Corinthians 3, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. Does that sound like a mature person? Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food. You were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Thoughts about that? Are, are, you, are you thinking the implication? I'm thinking what Paul is saying, if you put the first passage together about arguments and quarrels, and one says, I follow Paul, Paulos, and this passage with it where he references that same dynamic happening where they're arguing who's following who, and he calls them infants. Not on spiritual meat, but on spiritual milk. And then if you put the passage in Hebrews chapter 5 and 6 where he says, you ought to be on meat by now, but you're still on milk. Those on milk are not acquainted with righteousness. Think that through. They're not righteous. What does righteous mean? They're not right in their heart or mind or attitude. They haven't been regenerated. They're not Christ-like in character. They're just coming over to the, to the process of, of knowing Christ. They're babies just converted, but they haven't been renewed or, re, or regenerated yet. So they're still operating on on worldly systems, arguing, bickering, dividing. Is Christianity divided today? You know, the Christian Encyclopedia, 34,000 different Christian groups. Yeah, 34,000. I'm going to share with you my paraphrase of of 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9. My dear brothers, I was not able to address you as grown-ups who have been enlightened by the truth about God's character of love, whose minds have actually been regenerated to be like Christ. No, I had to speak to you as those still infected with the principles of the world, the survival of the fittest, me- fit, survival of the fittest methods, people who are just starting God's treatment plan, newborn babes in Christ. 
Therefore, I gave you baby food, the ABCs of God's treatment plan. And instead of growing up beyond the basics, many of you preferred the elementary teachings and are still not ready to grow up in Christ. In fact, the infection of selfishness, which the world loves, still dominates your lives. Is it not demonstrated by your persistent jealousy, arguing, bickering, and infighting? Are you not acting like the rest of the world, looking out for yourselves and promoting your own agenda, rather than surrendering all you have to the cause of Christ? You even promote the spirit of division and competition, just like the world, and turn the mind away from Christ when you say, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, yeah, but I follow Apollos. What, after all, is Paul or Apollos? We are merely aids of God, conduits of his, of his who have brought you the same healing remedy, each doing his part in the healing process the Lord has assigned. I plant the truth about God, and Apollo waters the truth with the wisdom God has given him, but it is God who causes the truth to grow and bring forth the fruit of a Christ-like character. It is God who heals. It is God who restores. So neither he who plants the truth about God or he who waters the truth is, any, is of any significance. The only important thing is God, who is the only source of life, the only source of healing. So you see, the man who plants the truth and the man who waters it have the same purpose, to see God's image fully restored in man, and such labor brings its own reward. For we are co-workers with God, and you are the field in which we labor. You are God's building upon which we work. Thoughts about that? Does that apply to us today? Are we working cooperatively with others to see the image of God restored in humanity? Or is our primary agenda to go out and instill institutional loyalties and de- degrade other institutions. Unity doesn't it require coming down to the base fact, the base fact that it being God's character of love, not denominational differences. So what is our view of denominations? Well, John Wesley was the founder of uh, the Methodist Church, and he had a dream. I'm going to share you the dream that really impacted Wesley's um, Theology and philosophy, and then, and then two paragraphs from Wesley about this whole thing. But this is his dream. John Wesley had a dream which affected his life tremendously. He dreamed that he died and came to the gates of heaven. He was anxious to know who had been admitted, so he questioned the keeper. Are there any Presbyterians here? None, replied the keeper at the gate. Wesley was surprised. Have you any Anglicans, he asked. No one, was the reply. Surely there must be many Baptists in heaven. No, none, replied the keeper. Wesley grew pale. He was afraid to ask the next question. How many Methodists are in heaven? Not one, answered the keeper. Wesley's heart was filled with wonder. The angel at the gate then told Wesley that there were no earthly distinctions in heaven. All of us here in heaven are one in Christ. We are just an assembly who love the Lord. Wesley was then taken downward, downward to the entrance of hell. He met the keeper at the gate there. Have you any Presbyterians here, asked Wesley. Oh, yes, many, answered the keeper. Wesley, Wesley stood still. Have you any Anglicans? He asked. Yes, yes, many, answered the keeper. Are there any Baptists there? Wesley continued. Of course, many, replied the keeper. Wesley was afraid to ask the next question. Are there any Methodists in hell? The keeper of the gate grinned. Oh, yes, there are many Methodists here. Wesley could hardly speak. Tell me, have you any who love the Lord? No, not one. No one in hell loves the Lord. What do you think about Wesley's dream? What about SDAs? If David had been around when John Wesley was alive, where do you think they would have fallen in the dream? Any Adventists in heaven? Yes. (laughs) Well, Wesley was profoundly... Pardon? Pardon? No? That's right, yes. So... Here's John Wesley's, couple paragraphs from John Wesley, his words. What then is the mark? Who is a Methodist, according to your own account? This is the question that's asked to him. I answer, a Methodist is one who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Ghost given unto him. One who loves the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, with all his strength. God is the joy of his heart and the desire of his soul, which is constantly crying out, whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides thee, my God and my all. Thou art the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If any man say, why, these are only common fundamental principles of Christianity. Thou hast said, so I mean. This is the very truth. I know they are, they are, I know they are uh, no other, and I w- would to God, both thou and all men knew, that I and all who follow my judgment 
do vehemently refuse to be distinguished from other men by any but the common principles of Christianity, the plain old Christianity that I teach, renouncing and detesting all other marks of distinction. And who, whoever is what I preach, let him be called what he, what he will, for names change not the nature of things. He is a Christian, not in name only, but in heart and in life. He is inwardly and outwardly conformed to the will of God as revealed in the word, in the written word. He thinks, speaks, and lives according to the method laid down in the revelation of Jesus. His soul is renewed after the image of God. His righteousness and in, after the image of God in righteousness and in all true holiness and having the mind that was in Christ, so he walks as Christ also walked. Can you improve on that? Is it shocking to hear something so clear from a non-Adventist? No. Know God, live God, trust God. Did you think Wesley left anything essential out from his statement? How many groups does the Bible describe or existing when Christ returns? Two. Sheep and goats, wheat and tares, pure woman and the harlot, faith, the faithful and the wicked, saved and lost. Do we equate our denomination with God's church on earth? 20%. I used to. I will tell you, I used to. 20%. There is an actual institutional agenda, I believe, to have people think this is the case. I heard a speaker recently this year speaking to a large group, and, and he said, you know, I've just gotten back from a certain part of the world where he was visiting, and, and the church of God in that part of the world is, is strong and vibrant. And I wanted to go up and ask him, well, how was the Adventist church doing? <laughs> But th- but that was the that was the message that that they're they're synonymous. Ellen White, one of the founders of our church, said this in the councils to parents, teachers, and students: "There is a strife between the forces of good and evil, between loyal and disloyal angels. Christ and Satan are not at an agreement, and they never will be. In every age, the true Church of God has engaged in decided warfare against satanic agencies." Until the controversy is ended, the struggle will go on between wicked angels and wicked people on the one side and the holy angels and true believers on the other side. Satan is trying to lead men. By the way, that was Christ's triumphant, page 28. This is counsels to parents, teachers, and students, page 494. Satan is trying to lead men and women away from the right principles. The enemy of all good, he desires to see human beings so trained that they will exert their influence on the side of error instead of using their talents to bless their fellow men. And multitudes who profess to belong to God's true church are falling under his deception. They are being led to, the, they are being led to turn away from their allegiance to the king of heaven. Didn't she say 20% of the Adventists are going to make it? I never heard that percentage. I've never heard one that. One in 20. One in 20? Okay, yeah, one in 20. Now, I have heard that. <laughs> 20% is Yeah. That's less than 20%. That's That's 5%. (laughs) Um, What might it look like to be led away? And notice what it says in this statement. It says, multitudes, they are being led away from God's true principles. Satan is trying to lead men away and women away from right principles. That's what we're being led away from, right principles. And Satan doesn't care how he gets you believing falsehood or living falsehood he just wants you distracted and gone but what is a principle away from understanding god's true character of love and understanding what unselfish love is and being able to have that principle of unselfish love the 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 root of all life so what leads us away from principles okay but but yes belief in a lie but I'm, i'm being very very precise here in the language principles if you're believing principles what leads us away from principles? I think what leads us away from principles is rules. Our own agenda. Rules. You either have principle-based thinking or rules-based thinking. Okay. Yep. And what she says here is that Satan deceives us by uh, leading us away from God's principles. 
his design, his protocols, the way things are constructed to operate. And, and if you put that together with the statement out of Desire of Ages, on um, page uh, 691, she says that in the beginning of the controversy, in the opening of the controversy, Satan declared God's law cannot be obeyed, so forth and so on. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Okay, this idea that, that, that rules that are broken must be punished because we're leading, being led away from principles, from, from design. This is out of Christian Education, page 76. The life of Christ was a life charged with a divine message of the love of God. And he longed intensely to impart this love to others in rich measure. Compassion beamed from his countenance, and his conduct was characterized by grace, humility, truth, and love. Every member of his church militant must manifest the same qualities if he should join the church triumphant. We're going to come to those two words, church militant, church triumphant. The love of Christ is so broad, so full of glory, that in comparison to it, everything that men esteem as great dwindles into insignificance. When we obtain a view of it all, we exclaim, oh, the depth of the riches of the love of God that bestowed upon men in the gift of his only begotten son. So what is the difference first between the church militant and the church triumphant? What does it mean, militant? When you think military, what do you think? War, combat. So the church militant is the church actively engaged in warfare. Where the church triumphant, the war's over. The war's done. We've won. No more warfare. So if you want to be in the church triumphant... She says here, every member of his church militant must manifest the same qualities that Christ manifests if they want to be part of the church triumphant. Well, before we get to that, what is this warfare in which we're engaged? In the Dark Ages, they thought that warfare meant putting a, a red cross on a tunic and getting a sword and going down to the Middle East and killing Muslims. The crusade, this was the church militant. Is that what it means to be a you know, onward Christian soldiers, that we go to war with weapons that the world uses. Or do you remember in Second Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, for though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we use, they're not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. Notice what we demolish. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ. We are in a war but the battlefield is primarily in the mind, and it centers on God, his nature, his character, his methods, his motives, his design, his protocols. And the weapons we use says here, compassion beamed from Christ's countenance, and his conduct was characterized by grace, humility, truth, and love. Every member of the church militant must manifest the same qualities if they are to be part of the church triumphant. Why are these the weapons to be used? Because these are the methods of God's kingdom. The opposite of the world. Weapons designed to restore God's image in humanity. Think about it. Truth destroys error or lies or falsehood. Yes. So we battle falsehood with truth. Compassion disarms guardedness and defensiveness. When When someone is afraid and fearful and you compassionate, it opens them up to be, hear the truth, you see? Grace overcomes prejudice. Grace overcomes prejudice. Satan is prejudicial. Prejudices are part of selfishness. Grace overcomes prejudice. Humility defeats pride and arrogance. And love destroys selfishness. These are the weapons. You can't destroy the infection using the weapons of the world. And if you look how the church in the Dark Ages went, they went with a certain doctrinal list of things you must believe, but the weapons they used were weapons of falsehood because it was not true what they were teaching. They used arrogance and pride because the more um, elevated you were in supposed their kingdom, then the more power you had and the more grandiose your garments and so forth and so forth, it became more, more pride-filled and more arrogant. Um, they were prejudiced. They didn't accept all people. You had to, do, you had to con- convert and conform to certain ways before you could be seen. In fact, we would burn dissenters at the stake. Yes, Linda. 
Well, just going back a little bit to your rule thing, I found the text came to mind and I finally found it in Isaiah 28, starting at verse 7. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. Priests and prophets stagger from beer and are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit. There's not a spot without filth. So who is he trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk, to those just taken from the breast? For it is do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, a little here, a little there. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to this people, to whom he said, this is the resting place, let the weary rest, and this is the place of repose, but they would not listen. So then the word of the Lord to them will become do and do, do and do, rule on rule, rule on rule, here a little here, a little there, so that they will go and fall backward, be injured, ensnared, and captured. Tell us what you think it means. How do you understand that? I like it. Thank you for sharing it. To me, it means God has a plan to, as we have said before, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm meek and lowly, and you'll find rest for your souls. And there's another text that says, in returning and rest is your strength. But instead, people replace that with a set of rules, that I'm going to accomplish salvation through a set of rules, not through what you've said. Yeah, rule upon rule. That's a great question. That was Isaiah 28? 28. Thank you. So how do these weapons, these weapons of compassion, truth, grace, humility, love, how do we obtain these weapons? How do we become proficient in wielding these weapons? So is there, so is there a choice you have to make here? Absolutely. Yes, yeah, so I think first is you have to have a decision to have a heart that is open and loves truth. Pursue the truth, want the truth, desire the truth, hunger for the truth. You know, those who are lost, it says in Thessalonians, are lost because, quote, they did not love the truth and thus be saved. It's not they didn't have the right facts. They didn't know the right commandments. They didn't do the right rituals. They didn't have a heart that actually was open to grow in truth. They weren't moving forward in their understanding of God and his kingdom. So first we want this heart that's open to truth. And then we spend time doing what? If you're really wanting to know the truth of God's methods and ways, you spend time studying, uh, searching, meditating, contemplating, praying, all, of course, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And as we study meditate on God's character, we are actually transformed. It's a transforming process. We become like. Neurobiologically, we change based on the God that we admire and worship. So if we are meditating and praying and doing all these things with a false God construct, that changes us in a different direction. It does. When we consider the church, do we find only those who are part of God's true church as memberships, membership in the denominational organization? Or not? This is out of Faith I Live by, page 30. Has God no living church? He has a church. But is the church militant, not the church triumphant? Meaning what? What does that mean? The church is still in the middle of active warfare, not the church that has achieved the victory. We are sorry that there are defective members. I thought this was nice. While the Lord brings into the church those who are truly converted, Satan at the same time brings persons who are not converted into its fellowship. While Christ is sowing the good seed, Satan is sowing the tares. There are two opposing influences continually exerted on the memberships of of the church. One influence is working for the purification of the church and the other for the corrupting of the people of God. Did did Do you believe this? That there are actually influences within the church that are working for the corrupting of the people of God. What do you think those influences would look like? Yes. Well, I'm thinking that some of the people who are working toward corrupting are not doing so consciously or intentionally. Oh, yes, I, I agree with this. He says he believes that people that are working to corrupt the, the, good, the good seed in the church are not necessarily doing it. There might be some that are, but not necessarily doing it consciously or intentionally. They, they think that maybe they're doing the right. I think Saul, before his conversion, was a good example. He was zealous. He was, thought he was serving the Lord. But Christ confronted, why are you persecuting me? He was actually working against Christ, but he thought he was working for and that brought him to conviction. I think you're right. There are many Saul's in the church. 
Well, and look at Peter, really, shortly before, you know, like in the garden, and, and he said, you know, when Jesus was talking about the cross, and he said... No, no, no. He said, get thee behind me, Saint. Yes, get thee behind me, Saint. So Peter, at that moment... I tend to agree with this. Yes. It's such a personal thing. It's all a personal walk. It's easy to talk about the church, but it really is basically... And I want to thank both of you for bringing this up because I wouldn't want my comments to suggest that these are purposely plotted. They're sincere people following what they think is true, but not necessarily doing God's work. Yeah. And so what does that tell you regarding who you trust? Only God and each person. That's why I said in here over and over and over again, I'll say it again today, I am not here to tell any of you what to think. I am not to be your mind for you. I'm not to be your conscience for you. I am here to challenge you to then think for yourself. Be like the Bereans. Hear what I say. Study it out for yourself. Come to your own conclusion. Okay? I am not God. I can make mistakes. I have made mistakes. I will make more mistakes. Yes? Well, it's almost like saying you're safer to be not even go to church, to be non-nominational, and just study and worship on your own and not follow anybody. Not follow anybody but Christ, but iron shirens are iron. Leading, if nobody's leading the truth about Christ, then yes. why would you go there? You see, people ask me this a lot because I have a lot of interaction outside of this denomination. And my view is you join a denomination because you share a common vision for the mission that that denomination is, is pursuing. Not for salvation. You, you're not saved by your denominational affiliation. You're saved by your relation with Jesus Christ. Right. Okay? But then you might identify this particular organization is engaged in a mission for the Lord that I share and I uh, align myself with, and I want to be part of that mission. And so that's why I joined this organization, to share the mission that they have and whatever it is that they're doing. And, and I leave... See, a lot of evangelism in this denomination is focused on going out and bringing people from other denominations, or if they're not Christian at all, but if they are Christian already, it's not a matter of deepening their relation with Christ. It's a matter of bringing them out of those other denominations into this denomination. My view is completely different. My view is that I want to bring people to a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ, that they experience a real transforming victory in their life, and then let the Holy Spirit convict them where the Holy Spirit wants them to go and work, what field of labor he wants them in. And there are people in all the different denominations that need this message and the Holy Spirit needs to say, you know what, this Methodist, this Anglican, this Baptist who has come to this beautiful picture of God needs to stay in their church and share this message with God to the people there, not leave that church and come over here. So I'm not all about denominational shifting. I'm about a message that is to lighten the world for Christ's return. And then when the shaking time comes and people are deciding because of these collaborations between uh, uh, religious organizations and governments with coercive pressures being to bear, there'll be a shaking that those who value God's methods cannot align themselves with the methods of the world. We can't coerce people's conscience. We can't go along with, with threatening to put people in prison and take their freedoms if they don't practice religion the way we do. And regardless of denomination, those people who understand God's methods will collect in a group and say, no, we can't support that. While those who believe in a dictator God will go, well, this is our God. We've waited for him. Boils down to a unique path for everybody. Yes. So there are two opposing influences. One influence is working to the purification of church. The other is for the corrupting of God's people. And I asked, how would that look? You know, my view is one of the most corrupting things is presenting God in a distorted light, presenting God in the church as a dictator, as a Roman, you know, like a Roman emperor, authoritative, abusive, one who takes pleasure in the suffering of his creatures and one who must mete out inflicted and and arbitrary punishments and so forth. Continuing on in the quote, although there are evils existing in the church and will be until the end of the world, the church in the last days is to be the light of the world that is polluted and demoralized by sin. So even though there's this church militant, even though there's this combat going on in our organization, and look at the church 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, when Christ arrived on earth, there was a church on earth. They had been blessed with the prophetic writings, the Sabbath, the health message, the sanctuary. Yes, they were Adventists looking for the advent of the Messiah. Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping Adventists is who these people were. You following me here? Okay. And what happened? What happened? How did the church function? And this is what, I think there are powerful lessons here. How the church functioned was the membership responded to the light. 
the leadership, except for Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Paul, and a few other rare ones, much of the leadership rejected the light. But the membership responded. And from the membership, masses came over and spread this, spread this word. If we wait for institutional, organizational leaders to, to lead us into Canaan, rather than following the Holy Spirit and fulfilling the purpose he has for each of us individually, I think we will never leave this world. God is waiting for a people to respond to the truth and take the message of truth wherever he opens opportunities for them to take it. I found this perspective interesting. This was out of Review and Herald, July 26, 1898. The church militant is is not in this world the church triumphant. From generation to generation, the enemy has been marshalling his forces against God. His enmity against the law of God has increased as time has passed. I want you to reflect on that, the law of God. What do you understand that to mean? And his followers are at enmity with anyone who has moral courage to depart from evil and bear witness to the truth. They pay no respect to the divine law, but are strict in enforcing human laws. I'm going to pause right there. So there's there's this contrast between divine law and enforcing human law. Now, what's the difference between divine law and human law? How do you understand that difference? Okay, she said natural versus imposed. I want to just unpack that a little bit. The, 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 God is the creator, the builder of the fabric of the cosmos. His laws are the actual protocols upon which the entire cosmos operate. Laws of health, laws of gravity. And there are moral laws, law of love, law of liberty, law of worship. By beholding, we become changed. There are moral laws that, that, that things operate in this way. Can human beings make those type of laws. No. So what kind of laws do human beings make? Arbitrary rules that require external authority to enforce conformity. And notice there is a war between the laws of the creator versus human laws. And Satan's agents promote human law. And I'm going to suggest they promote it under the guise of God's law. That God's law is like this. And this is how God operates. And it's keeping on with the quote. They are not in harmony with God. They are not attracted by his righteousness. In their human judgment, they will condemn men who conscientiously keep the commandments of God. But God's children will not be frightened from their purpose by the proud, presumptuous opposition of evildoers. By faith, they see a crown of life awaiting for, for those who are victorious, and they press forward toward the mark for the prize of their high calling in Christ Jesus. Does conscientious commandment keeping, this is the language you use, conscientious commandment keeping, mean conformity to a checklist of rules or heart loyalty to God? And if by commandments you mean love God with all your heart, strength, soul, and your neighbors yourself, yes. That commandment keeping. And, and yes, come on. I listened to a short talk yesterday. This is the 100th anniversary of the beginning of World War One, And in England, this was a very traumatic time because young, young Adventist men were constricted to go into the military and bear arms. Well, there were quite a few, when I say quite a few, maybe 20 young men Adventist men who, who were pacifists when it came to that. And uh, the government didn't think kindly to them. Uh, they were really brutalized, these, the, the, this group of young Adventist men. And, and the essence was, why did they do it? Why were they pacifists? It was it was a it was something that they had strong belief in. They were put in prison. They were they were um, made to smash up big hunks of granite into powder, and then do it again over there. It was just uh, they were manacled for for months and months with their arms behind their backs, and yet they they all had this 
thing that was very important to them. Where did they get it, and why was it so important to them? And, and for me, I can see them doing that out of love for God and wanting to live in harmony with his methods, not to kill. I could also see somebody doing the same thing because there's a rule that they must keep, and if they break the rule, they'll get punished, and they're not going to break the rule. I could see a person doing it for both motives. And, and, and perhaps that was part of it because uh, nowadays, not all of the evidence who go into the military are pacifists. Many of them bear arms. Things change. <clears throat> During, excuse me, uh, that's just the way it is. What was important here may not be quite so important over here. Russell. History has showed us that there have been a, a group of conscientious commandment keepers living on earth at a time, and when God came and walked and taught among them, they murdered him. So the, the, the conscientious keeping of rules and commandments, there, there must be something more. So, so I'm glad you made that contrast because the question, conscientious commandment keeping, is it a conforming to a list, a checklist of rules that you're referring to, or does it mean being led by a clear conscience to live in harmony with God's design for life? I think um, the way of the world is opposite the way of God. So basically, you're either glorifying yourself or you're glorifying God. Being in the entertainment business, I see this all the time. So it's very clear what you're, if you're doing it one way or the other. And in the, I think the end of the lesson, it said something about God is not interested in great work. He's interested in the fidelity and love you put into your work. Thank you very much for that. If we think about commandment keeping, are we the kind of people who will heal on Sabbath? Or will we refuse to heal on Sabbath in order to keep the rule? You remember the tension that Christ faced when he was here 2,000 years ago. Is keeping God's law about focusing on, now get your mind around this, when you think about God's law, it's about focusing on self, on what we must do, on what we must not do, about, or is it about focusing on God, understanding his kingdom, seeking to magnify his methods, revealing his character and how we conduct ourselves and how we treat others, loving God and loving others. You see, there's the, the loving God, loving others aspect, which our focus isn't about us. It's, hey, how can I glorify him? How can I help this other person? Versus the rules, hey, what do I have to do in order to be saved? Uh, what, what do I have to do not to have a, a demerit marked against my record book in heaven, a bad deed put down? Where's the focus? It's back on self again. Why did Christ heal the paralytic on Sabbath who'd been paralyzed for 38 years? He could have done it on Friday or on Sunday. Been paralyzed for 30. Was this an emergency? I got to do it now or he's going to die? <laughs> this was an obvious chronic condition. He could have done it on any day. He chose Sabbath to heal the guy on. Oh, and, and not only that, why did he choose to tell the, the paralytic after he healed him to pick up his mat and carry it on Sabbath? He could have healed him and told him to come back and get his mat tomorrow. He purposely broke their rules. Their, notice their rules to try and instill a, a reality that God's laws are design protocol laws. Restoring someone to health is putting someone back in harmony with how life is designed to function. Not a list of do's or don'ts. And there's a, a, a reference in the notes. I'm not going to read it for those who'd like to see that. Okay, now we're finally up to our memory text for our lesson this week. Okay. <laughs> I do not pray for those alone. <laughs> this is out of uh, John 17, 20 and 21. I do not pray for those alone, but uh, for also, also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. What is Christ describing here? A single word describing them. Okay, unity is a good word. What's a theological word? Church. Atonement. This is atonement. At one meant. We just call it atonement. And the reason we call it atone is because the old English pronunciation, if a person is all by themselves, they're alone. They're not all one. They're alone. And so when you're unified back into oneness, it's not at one. That's not how we pronounce it. We pronounce it atone. But this word atone and atonement has, through the hundreds of years since this has come into the English language, been corrupted to mean something like legal payment. It doesn't mean that. Christ here is speaking of all of us coming back into one. And in Colossians, it talks about all coming under one head, even Jesus Christ. Unity. This is at one This was Christ's mission to bring creation back under oneness with God. And so we read out of 7 Bible Commentary 464, this is Ellen White's words, The atonement of Christ is not a mere skillful way to have our sins pardoned. 
It is a divine remedy for the cure of transgression and the restoration of spiritual health. It is the heaven-ordained means by which the righteousness of Christ may not only be upon us, but in our hearts and characters, restoring us to oneness. Where May they be one as we are one, one in heart, one in mind, one in character, one in method, one in motive. And this is um, 7 ABC 472. The Father loves us not because of the great propitiation, but he provided the propitiation because he loves us. Christ was the medium, means, method, way, through which God could pour out his infinite love upon fallen upon the fallen world. And then quoting scripture, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. God suffered with his son in the agony of Gethsemane, the death of Calvary, the, the heart of infinite love paid the price for our redemption. And that's the next question I want to ask you guys. What does it mean the infinite love paid the price of our redemption? There's a cost for sacrifice. Well, it depends on where your developmental stage of moral development is, how you answer this question. And there there are seven developmental stages. I'm going to walk you through them very quickly and show you how each of the stages answers this question differently. What is the price paid? First stage is reward and punishment, which is the most basic understanding. Something is right if you receive reward and wrong if you're punished. This is the Nazi soldier who put people in the gas chamber because if he didn't, he would be court-martialed and punished. So it made it right. Why did Christ have to die at this level? Because God said, don't do something. They didn't do what God said. Therefore, it requires punishment. Jesus died to pay the punishment. This is basic level one. This is an infant. This is what Paul's referring to, that they're not acquainted with righteousness. Those who present this view are Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. And it says explicitly in there, those on milk are not acquainted with righteousness. They're still focused on acts that lead to death, the do's and the don'ts. Second is marketplace exchange, the quid pro quo. You do something for me. I'll do something of equal value for for you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. In this view, why did Christ have to die? Because Satan now has right to the earth, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, and Christ had to pay the penalty to Satan, the quid pro quo. Thus, Aslan gives his life to the white witch in order to free the son of Adam. You see that if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, this version that's taught in second level. Third level, social conformity. At this stage, right and wrong is determined by the community consensus. Everybody else is doing it. It must be right. And at this level, why did Christ have to die? To win the approval of his father for the human race. So this father would, 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 would approve of us again. Fourth level, law and order. Right and wrong at this stage is determined by a codification of rules, external judges, and imposed punishments. Respect for property properly elected officials and otherwise constituted authority is paramount at this level. And why did Christ have to die at this level? To pay the legal penalty the law demanded and the heavenly judge imposed. Level five, love for others. Right and wrong at this level is seeking to the best interests of other people, realizing people have value in who they are, inalienable rights, uh, uh, which are inherent in who they are as a child of God, not by a checklist of rules. Why did Christ have to die at this level? Because he loved us too much to let us go, and his death was the means to reach us with his love. And then level six, principle-based living. Realizing the design protocols, principles upon which life is designed to operate, and living in harmony with those laws of health, laws of love, law of liberty, so forth. Why did Christ have to die at this level? It was the only means to fix what sin had done to God's creation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And the early church fathers taught this as the recapitulation theory that Christ took up Adam, man broken off in Adam and carried it to completion, fixing what Adam did to man. And then the seventh level, enlightened friend of God. This is what I call the enlightened friend of God. Realizing the truth about God, his character, nature, design for life, the origins of evil, the nature of sin, the weapons of Satan, the original purpose of the creation of humanity, the fall, God's working through human history, the purpose of the cross, and the ultimate cleansing of the universe from sin. Having that that perspective that God wants his friends to have. Atonement at this level becomes at-one-ment, being restored to God's full ideal, having the law written on the heart, operating with the mind of Christ, doing what's right, because it is right, and right doing is pleasing to God. And why did Christ have to die at this level? It was the only means whereby God could expose the lies of Satan, 
reveal the truth about himself, destroy the infection of selfishness operating in the human species, put the law of love back into the species human, and ultimately destroy death, sin, and the devil. So why did Christ have to die? What was the penalty paid? It was what was necessary in order to fix all that sin had done to God's creation. So, according to moral developmental theorists, a person can only comprehend one level above the level they're currently operating at. So a person at levels 1, 2, 3, and 4 cannot comprehend a person operating at level 6. It makes no sense to them. It's nonsense to them. And in fact, they'll accuse a person suggesting that God operates by principles and God does not have to kill the wicked in the end because sin is deviation from the design and God lets them go to reap separation from him and the rep separation is suffering and death. They can't comprehend it. They say that's not just, it's unfair. Justice requires when you break a rule that the authority must give proper punishments for those and you guys are just thinking of marshmallow God where nobody gets punished. It doesn't make sense to them. And so what happens is the majority of people operate at level four or below. Generally, it's thought that only about 25% of people make it to level 6 and 7. And the level 4s and below persecute the people at level 6 and 7. This is what happened to Christ. The people in his day were operating at those levels. And they still are in the Middle East. I mean, it's eye for an eye, which is the second level. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Vengeance is a justice. In, in, at level 2, it is considered just to take vengeance upon someone. In fact, it's a moral obligation. If you don't take vengeance, you're not being moral at level two. Do you understand? Much of the Middle East is operating at level two still today. This is why we're having what's going on in Gaza still. They can't come to peace. You go over and try to talk level six to them, you make no sense whatever. It's not just happening in the Middle East, though. Road rage here <laughs> and the rest. What, what about in your own church? So with all this in mind, how do we experience the unity Christ prayed for? Pray that they will be one as you are one, I and you, you and me, all of us together in unity. Do you see why the New Testament over and over again says, I want you to grow up and stop being infants on milk. I want you to grow up to the full stature of Jesus Christ. I want you to grow up to maturity. Stop, you know, don't rest satisfied as an infant. Way in the back, in the corner. Yes? I just, uh, how do you reach someone and draw them up higher? You know, without so it rec- feel bad. You know, how do you Great question. want to learn more? What causes a person to be willing to move from the level they're on to the next level? It is a circumstance for which thing their level does not answer or work. So, simple example, person at level one, child at level one, operating at level one, it's, it's right if it's a reward, it's, it's uh, uh, wrong if you're punished. There's a piece of pie. And there's only one piece of pie, and there's two brothers. The older brother and the younger brother. The, they're both operating at level one. The older brother, who's bigger and stronger, can take the pie with force and punish his little brother if he tries to get some of his pie. Operate at level one. He has, and as long as it operates at this level, nothing challenges him. He has no reason to prove But the younger brother, realizing he can't take the pie, he's smaller, he can't do it, realizes that, you know what? It might be better if we negotiate some type of an agreement. How about we split the pie and I'll do some chores for you? A quid pro quo relation. I'll do some for you, you do something for me. And because his circumstance doesn't answer his need, he, he's challenged to think for a different answer. But the older brother who can just take what he needs and doesn't have to actually think about something that he, that he can't get by his own power and might is never challenged to think beyond level one. So what challenges us to think beyond our level is when life circumstances present to us uh, problems and issues for which our current level does not adequately address. Now sometimes, though, people, instead of growing to the next level, will regress into earlier levels, and they will actually, uh, because they believe certain lies and falsehoods, and they will actually shut down thinking with things like, well, God's ways aren't my ways. Yeah, it, must be, it must be God's ways. Uh, uh, I, I just take that on faith. I, I don't want to think about that. And they'll, and they'll revert to some very primitive, self-righteous, usually, box in which any new ideas have to be rejected as heresy because it threatens their status quo. So how do you reach somebody? I, you reach them by, by presenting situations to them that cause, in psychiatric terms, we call cognitive dissonance. 
that presents a circumstance to them that causes them to have cognitive tension. It doesn't work. Their, their, their model doesn't fit. And that's what you do over and over again to challenge them to see in, in different ways. But they can only see one level above the level they're at. <laughs> yeah. All right, Monday's lesson, fourth paragraph, it says about unity. This kind of unity does not happen spontaneously. In order to have it, we must fully accept Christ's lordship in our lives. We must mold our character. He must mold our character, and we must surrender our will to his will. I agree with this. Well said. This is how it happens in a relationship with Jesus Christ, that we come to know who he really is, admire him, open up, trust him, and then there's a supernatural cooperative effort that happens where you get uh, new desires and motives as the Holy Spirit's working in your heart. I tell patients that healthy relationships require healthy people. Think about the relationship between Judas and Jesus. Was that a healthy relationship? Was it because Jesus wasn't patient enough, wasn't kind enough, wasn't loving enough, wasn't mature enough? Is that why? No. You can't be more healthy than Jesus was. And he still had an unhealthy relationship because it was with an unhealthy, self-centered person. This is important to recognize. Many people fail on this. They're in a relationship with somebody who's very self-centered, very narcissistic, very dysfunctional, and they, and they keep blaming themselves because things don't work out, and they try, and they try, and they try, and it doesn't work out. No, healthy relationships require healthy people. If you're involved with an unhealthy person, you cannot have a healthy relationship with them. Conversely, if you aren't as healthy as it's possible for you to be through God's grace, you can't have a healthy relationship with someone, no matter how healthy they are. So our responsibilities is through God's grace to be ever-growing, to be the healthiest person we can be in our relationships. This is where we focus our attention. Russell, you had your hand up. This idea of surrendering our will um, makes me a little, a little squeamish. Isn't it more that... This, no, did you ask, the, ask the question, surrendering it for what purpose? Yes, as we come to know and appreciate and admire... the, the, God, the, the God of love that Christ revealed him to be... He, he molds and shapes our will into that like his. We, we surrender our natural human tendencies to look out for self. Yes, surrendering the will doesn't mean we become puppets and say, God, um, I don't want to make any choices uh, with my will. I want you to decide. So, Lord, should I take the umbrella today or wear a raincoat? You decide, Lord. I don't want to make a decision. Right. Okay, this is not what the Lord wants. Okay? Uh, what the Lord wants, we surrender our will to him for cleansing, for healing, for purification, for ennobling, for um, made righteous. But at the end of the day, he wants us, because what's the last fruit of the Spirit? Self-control. The Greek word is enkratia, and within, krat, like autocrat, democrat, exercising authority within oneself. The fruit, when the Spirit has his way in your life, he sets you free to be self-governed, self-actualizing, operating on his methods and principles, which is the law of love has been written in your heart and mind. So you're right. Thanks for clarifying that. So surrendering the will is not what Satan would have. Satan would actually take your will from you, and you would become like a demonic, demoniac in the Bible where some other outside intelligent agency is actually dominating and controlling you and you have no free will. The Holy Spirit, when he has your will, will actually set you free to be self-governing in love, actualized by his motives. That's a great clarification. Tuesday's lesson, uh, second paragraph, it says, uh, if we have Jesus, we will also have his words, which are actually the words of the Father. Jesus is the truth and the and the word of the Father is the truth as well. Unity in Jesus means unity in the word of God. In order to have unity, we need to agree on the content of the truth as, it, as presented in the word of God. Any attempt to attain unity without adherence to a body of biblical beliefs is destined to failure. I'm going to challenge this. I think, this is a, 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 I think it means well, but I think this is a subtle error that causes division in the church. Because what this is setting up is setting up for a creed. They didn't use the word creed, but notice they're talking about we must come to a set of common beliefs. And so we have in our church a set of what? Fundamental beliefs. But we don't have a creed. But if you look up in the dictionary, the definition of creed, the actual definition, look it up. A set of fundamental beliefs. That's what it is. And why then we didn't just say we have a creed? Why do we we actually use a, a synonym for that instead of saying creed? Because in the founding of our church, it was explicit that we should never have a creed. Ellen White wrote repeatedly that uh, do not carry your creed to the Bible the, 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 uh, and read the scripture in light of, of that creed. 
If you find that your opinions are opposed to the plain thus saith the Lord or any command or prohibition he has given, heed the word of God or the Bible and the Bible alone is to be our creed, the sole bond of union. The Bible and the Bible alone is our creed. Why? Because creeds cause division. We are divided as Christians over what's the right way to baptize? What's the right day to worship on? What, what foods are we to eat? How do we prepare those foods? Uh, what's the right way to hold communion? Uh, whether we should wash our feet before communion or not? Uh, what right understanding of the Trinity? We have all these different things we're divided on. And do you notice all these things we're divided on are, are stood up as standalone doctrines that we prove with proof texts, disconnected from how they inform us about who God is. And we have, God is no longer the center. And doctrines, I'm going to suggest to you, if you look at doctrines and you start wanting to study doctrines, great, as long as you do this, connect every doctrine to back to God and say, okay, if this doctrine is true, what does that tell me about God? Who is God? What kind of being is God if this is truth in his universe? If his universe runs like this, if God has a place where wicked die and are tormented for all eternity, what kind of a God is that? What kind of a universe is that? If God has a place where if you don't get baptized with the right word said over you by an ordained minister who says in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I baptize you, boom, and dunk you underwater. If that doesn't happen in the proper ritualistic way, you can't go to heaven. What kind of universe is this? What kind of a being is this? I'm not suggesting that's not the, the prescribed way for baptism at all. I'm suggesting that it's not required for salvation. Look at the thief on the cross. He didn't go through that. Abraham didn't go through that. All the people prior to Christ didn't go through that. They're saved, but they didn't go through that ritual. There's a place and purpose for the ritual, but you need to understand the ritual. And if we start setting up these arbitrary little behavioral tests, what kind of a God is that? And it's really about transforming the inner working of the person so that selfishness and fear has been eradicated and the law of love has been written in the heart. And they become like Christ in mind and character, understanding reality as God's designed it to operate and work like him and with him. There's, some, there's something else I want to jump to real quick, and that's Wednesday's lesson in the last few minutes, and it talks about people who gossip in Wednesday's lesson, people who gossip. And I want to talk to you about and it, what a great barrier it is to unity. Gossip is, you know, in, in heaven, Satan's primary weapon in heaven was gossip. He went behind the scenes and gossiped, spread little rumors that caused division, and a third of the angels out of heaven fell because of gossip in heaven. It's very destructive. But what is it that primary drives a gossiper? What is the motive for a gossiper? I'm going to suggest to you it is primarily driven by fear and insecurity. Fear and insecurity. They long to be valued. They long to be special. They long to be loved. And so um, this is, and by the way, fear and insecurity is part of the infection of sin. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. We're born with fear and insecurity. They don't have love in their heart. It's not a love-driven modus operandi. And so people who gossip, they feel insecure and they want to be valued. They want to be important. They want to be special. They want to be recognized as worthwhile. They want people to, to desire their presence and want them around. So they bear tales, hoping to ingratiate themselves with people so the people will like them. This is the primary motive of a gossip, fear and insecurity. But such, such actions of gossip damage everyone. Everyone is injured. I'm going to walk you through how everyone's injured. The one gossiped about is injured in reputation, undermined trust in their relationships, having doors and opportunities for their ministry closed, and so forth. The one doing the gossiping is damaged in their character, sears their conscience, warps their character, makes more fear because they're afraid they'll be found out on their tail bearing, and so they live in fear that someone will find them out. The one who hears the gossip is damaged because they are now faced with temptation. They must wrestle with the tale. Do they allow the gossip to alter their attitudes towards the one they've heard about? Do they have different beliefs, different associations? Do they spread the tale? The group that it occurs in is damaged. It will be divided into factions and subgroups and conflicts will arise. Everyone is damaged by gossip. So what's the best way to handle gossip? Somebody comes to you with gossip, what's the best way to handle it? Reflect it back on the gossiper. Reflect it back. Why did you bring me this tale? What do you want to achieve by this? What is your motive? Have you gone to the person that you're talking about to discuss your concerns with them? Because I know you love them and you want their redemption and you wouldn't want to hurt their reputation, would you? How are you protecting them right now by telling me this? What do you think would happen if you did this with somebody who brought you some gossip, reflected it back? 
Ah. <laughs> Do you realize that you coming to me, I don't really know anything about the person that you're gossiping about, but you're revealing to me that you can't be trusted with sensitive information. I can't share. I can't confide in you because you're going to break trust and you're going to go gossip about me. You have told me you're an untrustworthy person. That's what you just told me about you. If you did this to people, what do you think would happen? Do you think they'd come to you with more tales? No. Maybe that's why we don't uh, do this, huh? We like the tales. Boy, but I won't hear any more of the good stuff if I do that. (laughs) Any closing comments from anyone? All right, let's go ahead and close the prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our creator, our designer, and a God of love, and you have created your entire universe to operate in harmony with your nature. Lord, we, as a people, as a species, have been tricked into believing you're like a dictator. And we so, we're so conditioned to think through this lens of human law constructs that we've never really fully appreciated the beauty of your kingdom. We ask for your spirit to be poured out into our minds. Help us see the truth as it is in Jesus. Help us to love the truth. Help us to embrace your methods of compassion, of truth, of humility, of grace in the treatment of other people that we can go out and truly be lights in the church, a church militant, a church at war over ideas about you. And we know your promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the truth. And we ask for the power, the power of love and the power of grace and the power of truth to break down these, these barriers in the minds of the friends and family and the acquaintances that we have that, that the knowledge of you will be made known on the earth again and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.